It's been a little while since we've done a hand-raising exercise in a sermon, so get, get your arms shaken out. If you're new here, we do this every now and then. I call it the audience participation portion of the service, even though the worship was also the audience participation portion. Just get your arms ready. I'm going to go through kind of rapid fire saying phrases, and if you've heard of the phrase, you raise your hand. It's that simple, all right? So the first one is, how many of you have heard the phrase, quick to listen and slow to speak? Okay, most of you, most of you. All right, good. How about be angry, but do not sin? Now, in the first service, somebody shot their hand up on be angry. They knew that one, and then, oh, yeah, there's more to the story. How about speak the truth in love? Okay, most of us have heard that one. How about live at peace with everyone? It's getting harder and harder to do that one, isn't it? Some of you haven't heard that one. Um, How about guard your heart? We say that one in church a lot, don't we? Guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. Rejoice in your sufferings. Okay, fewer, but still quite a few. How about treat others the way you want to be treated? I heard that one a lot growing up. I don't know about you. Maybe you, if you have kids, you've said that to your children. And maybe this last one, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How many of you heard that? Yeah, most of us have heard most of these, okay? And that's because these are teachings of the New Testament, okay? Many of these are red letters in our Bibles as Jesus taught people that this is the way to live, the way to be. And so at the beginning here, I would just ask you, how are you doing with those? How are you doing with those things that we just talked through? How are you doing at being quick to listen and slow to speak? Or being angry but not sinning or guarding your heart or rejoicing in your sufferings or loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. This is another one of those mirror messages. Just have a mirror. And we'll have a couple of opportunities to self-assess. It's not a magnifying glass message where we look at other people and see how they're doing and inspect their lives. Just, just ask yourself, how are we doing? And I would encourage you as we do this to focus not just on your position, but also your trajectory. How are you doing compared to a year ago or five years ago or ten years ago? You see, if we focus too much on position sometimes, we can either be an inflated or a deflated assessment. But if we focus on trajectory, where are we in comparison to where we were? What is our trajectory? This is a very important aspect of how we're doing. And maybe some would even say more important, because if you're in a good position but your trajectory is bad, then that's bad news contrary. If you're in a position you would like to be higher, you would like to be in a better position, but your trajectory is good, then you're making progress. That's a very good thing. And so think about this in regards not just to position, but also trajectory. Where are you growing? How are you growing? Because discipleship has been defined as essentially learning how to do what Jesus said to do. Learning how to do what Jesus said to do. John West is the one that I heard say that. Uh, He's the one that also put together our Banding Together journals that we use in a lot of our adult discipleship uh, groups. And it's this idea that Jesus said to do a lot of things. Paul said to do a lot of things. The Old Testament said to do a lot of things. How do we learn to do what Jesus said to do? That is the process of becoming Christ-like. That is the process of discipleship, being an apprentice of Christ, being spiritually formed. And oftentimes, our spiritual maturity is hindered more by our own emotional immaturity than anything else. It's not always a lack of knowledge. Sometimes we know what Jesus said to do. It's not even a lack of desire. We really want to do what Jesus said to do. 
but the problem of emotional immaturity is that we get in our own ways. And when we're emotionally immature, we get in our own way and we don't do the things we want to do. We don't do the things we know to do. And so that's why we're talking about emotionally healthy spirituality. And that's why we're talking today about learning to love well. We're in week seven of this eight-week series, and chapter seven was titled, Grow into an Emotionally Mature Adult. That's not a great sermon title. Again, two weeks in a row, I've changed it up just a little bit, but we are talking about some of the content in chapter seven and the idea of learning to love well. I almost titled the message, Loving Lessons, and I thought, well, people might get the wrong idea with that. So let's just focus on learning to love well, learning to do what Jesus said to do. We'll look at the emotional, the, the problem of emotional immaturity, but also how to grow out of emotional immaturity and into emotional maturity, which ties in perfectly with our key passage of Scripture today. It's in Matthew chapter 22. So if you need a Bible, we've got Bibles in the seats in front of you, and you're welcome to open one of those Bibles up. Um, we'll be on page 1535. We've also, you've got Bibles that you brought with you or a digital version. If you're joining us online, open up a Bible, take a moment to do that, or just follow along on the screens. But we're going to be looking at verses 34 through 40, which are sort of subtitled, or there's a paragraph heading uh, there that's titled, The Greatest Commandment. The Greatest Commandment. And the context of Matthew chapter 22 is that these two groups that were sort of the religious elite in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus' ministry. You had the Sadducees on one side and you had the Pharisees on the other side. And these two groups didn't see eye to eye on much of anything with each other, but they both really disliked Jesus. Okay? And so Matthew chapter 22 is them sort of taking turns trying to trick Jesus into saying the wrong thing so that they would have some charge to bring against him. That's where we pick up the story is after they've had a couple of volleys back and forth. Then in verse 34, we hear this. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And so the question comes, what's the greatest commandment? Which is the one that's before or over all the other commandments. And in the Greek language, the word mega is used there. So it's literally the great commandment or the mega commandment, right? The biggest, the best, the most important. And they want to be able to debate this with Jesus. They want to maybe be able to poke holes. Maybe this is the first question in a series of questions that they want to advance into some sort of an argument or build some case against him. We're not quite sure because it doesn't quite go the way that they had planned. Because Jesus responds definitively, right away. And I find this interesting because if you read the Gospels, you see that this isn't always the case. A lot of times, Jesus responds to a question with another question. Or he tells a story that illustrates a point. But in this case, he responds to their question immediately and definitively and decisively. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The song we just sang, My heart is yours and my soul and my mind. And yet, he also says in verse 38, This is the first and greatest commandment. So they asked which one was the greatest or which one's the mega commandment, Jesus, and he adds to that. He says this is not just the great, not just the first, it, it, or not just the greatest, it's also the first. 
commandment. This is the most important. And, and first is somewhat synonymous with mega, but it also adds primary or before all the others or the principal or the chief, the most important. And there's no surprise in the verse that he shares, no surprise in the command that he shares. This was known as the Shema. This was memorized at a very early age by devout Jews, and they would say it at the beginning and the end of the day. Every devout Jew would, would say this, Behold, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one God. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And they taught this to their children. And they said it over and over, so it's no surprise that he goes there. And before we move on to where he goes next, I think it's significant that he doesn't just say with all your heart or with all your mind or with all your soul, but he says with all of all three. And all becomes the key word here. And I love how that song we sang sort of brought the hymn, I surrender all, into the song. Because that's what he's saying, almost in the, the preschooler terminology, all your everything. Like the Jewish understanding of the person and their ability to love was heart, mind, and soul. He's saying all of, all of that. Bring it all to Jesus. And in so doing, he's saying don't hedge your bets on loving Jesus, on loving God. Don't hedge your bets. Don't have a tactical reserve. Don't have a plan B in case that doesn't work out. He's saying all your everything, bring it all to God. Love Him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And they would have been fine if it had ended right there. They were probably ready to interject, and he wasn't finished, was he? He had a little bit more to say about this. And so he continues in verse 39, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And they're like, oh, what? we didn't ask about a second. <laughs> we didn't ask about a second greatest commandment. And he's not even talking about a second greatest commandment. He's talking about a second great commandment. He's talking about a second mega commandment. He's saying when he says it's like the first, he's putting it on par with. He's saying it's equal to. He's saying it's pretty much indistinguishable from. The second is just like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, both times when he talks about loving God and when he talks about loving your neighbor, he uses the same word for love. It's the word, the Greek word agape. Maybe you've heard of this one before. The Greek had four different words for love. This is the highest. This is the divine love. This is the love God has for us seen most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. This is self-sacrificing love. Love that seeks the benefit and the welfare and the ultimate good of the other person, even at your own expense. Again, seen most clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ, where he, God himself, sacrificed himself for us on the cross. And so the cross becomes the perfect symbol for Christianity because you have a vertical relationship with God. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. In these relationships here on earth, we have the divine love in our vertical relationship with God, and we have relationships with our peers, with the people around us. We love them as we love ourselves. And so I dare you to ask yourself, how am I doing on this one? This is the greatest. This is the most important. This is the first before all the others. Again, just focus on yourself, an honest self-assessment, no guilt, no shame, no condemnation. Am I loving God with all 
my everything? Am I loving my neighbor as myself, even the annoying ones? Even the ones that don't mow their lawn? I was that guy for the last couple of weeks. I finally got a mowed. You're welcome, whoever you are over there. And he's still not finished. He has one more thought to add to this in verse 40. He hasn't closed the quote yet. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, that's quite a statement. Because in my Bible, this is all the law and the prophets. In this Bible, is over 800 pages. In the few Bibles, it's something like 1,500 pages. Boiled down to two commandments. And he's basically saying that these two, if you get them right, you're getting it all right. (laughs) And if you get these two wrong, you're getting a lot wrong. He's saying that basically the entire Old Testament, because the law was the first five books, the law, the books of Moses, and the prophets was everything else. The entire Old Testament comes down to loving God with all your heart, mind, and soul, loving your neighbor as yourself. And this really underscores the importance of learning to love well, doesn't it? Where we shift the focus from ourselves, and we shift it onto God and onto others. And that, my friends, is the process of emotionally maturing. It's when we get the focus off of ourselves and viewing everything through how it relates to us and start to focus on God, love God, self-sacrificing, surrender to God, and love one another. And so in the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, as we think through this, (laughs) Schizero provides some emotional life stages. Emotional life stages. And I found these to be fascinating. And, and I actually prayed through it and decided, I think I'm supposed to share this. And I'm going to preface it with this one little caveat. I'm going to read each section, and I'm not going to make eye contact. Because <laughs> I don't want somebody to see me look up at you when I'm talking about emotional infants. And you're like, well, that's it. I'm out of here. Which would be a very emotionally image. Never mind. I'm not... <laughs> but I want to read each of these sections and comment on them. And, and I'm not here to throw darts. But I would encourage you to listen and see if the Holy Spirit gives you an elbow. Husbands and wives, keep your elbows to yourselves, okay? This one's none of these chicken wings, okay? Emotional infants look for others to take care of them. Infants need people to take care of them. Emotional infants have great difficulty entering into the world of others. They're driven by a need for instant gratification, and they use others as objects to meet their needs. Now, We don't have much of a problem with this with infants. We love infants. Infants are amazing. Like a newborn baby is one of the most special, pure, precious things in all the world. We love infants when they're infants. But infantile is not exactly a compliment, right, for a child or a teenager or an adult. Infantile isn't a positive thing. We come to resent infantile behavior in people that are growing. And one of the issues is that age is not necessarily an indicator indicator of emotionally mature people. Like physically, we mature along a progression that's pretty observable, and most people are physically mature by the time they're 16 or 18 years old. They're, They're physically mature. They're stopped maturing physically. But emotional maturity doesn't follow the same 
timeline necessarily. We can have big pauses, plateaus, where we don't mature emotionally anymore or where circumstances drive us into seasons of emotional immaturity. Next group would be emotional children. Emotional children are content and happy as long as they receive what they want. They unravel quickly from stress, disappointments, and trials. They interpret disagreements as personal offenses and are easily hurt. Emotional children complain, withdraw, manipulate, take revenge, become sarcastic when they don't get their way, and they have great difficulty calmly discussing their needs and wants in a mature, loving way. Now, the concept of age-appropriate behavior does apply here. Like, there are certain things that are age-appropriate, and as infants become children, they have words, they have emotion, they have awareness of the self. They start to say words like no to you. And we talk about the terrible twos or the terrible threes or the toddler years where there's this seeking of boundaries. But similar to infantile, the, the phrase childish or the word childish is not a compliment for an adult. It's interesting to me that childlike usually is a positive phrase. You have childlike faith, you have childlike enthusiasm, you have childlike joy and exuberance in everything that you do. This is a good thing. But to be childish as an adult or a teenager is not necessarily a good thing. And several of these have to do with what happens when we don't get our way. What happens when we don't get our way? This is perhaps the clearest indicator of our emotional maturity. And if I have my mirror out and I want to know how emotionally mature I am, one of the best times to look is when I'm not getting my way in one way or another. And as the book says, you know, we can do things that infants can't. Once we're emotional children, we can complain, we can withdraw, we can manipulate, take revenge, become sarcastic. In the church, we might add that we can spiritualize. We can find a Bible verse that tells us why we should get our way, or we can just leave. Just take our ball and go home, find a different church, or maybe they'll do it our way. Or they'll be so excited to see us that they'll change to keep us. Or maybe we stay, but we just gossip about it and become divisive and create little factions. That kind of leads into the next one with emotional adolescence. Because emotional adolescents or emotional teenagers tend to become defensive very quickly. They are threatened and alarmed by criticism. They keep score of what they give so they can ask for something later in return. Emotional adolescents deal with conflict poorly, often blaming, appeasing, going to a third party, pouting, or ignoring the issue entirely. They become preoccupied with themselves, have great difficulty truly listening to another's pain, disappointments, or needs, and can be very critical and judgmental. It's interesting here, in adolescence, the ego is dominant, and many of those characteristics have to do with protecting the ego, often unconsciously. We're not really aware of this. It's sort of like an autopilot. And there's a transactional nature to much of it. They enter into 50-50 relationships. I'll do for you if you'll do for me, but as long as, you're, if, as long as you're for me, I'll be for you. But if I feel like you're not for me, then I'm not for you anymore. And they can really lack empathy because they see things through the lens of their life and they can't really put themselves in the position of another person. That's what empathy requires. And so while emotional adolescents might be less infantile or less childish, they are more selfish or still selfish. And now the last group that we've all been waiting for, emotional adults. Emotional adults are able to ask for what they need, want, or prefer. They do it clearly, directly, and honestly. They recognize, manage, and take responsibility for their own thoughts and feelings. They can, when under stress, state their own beliefs and values without becoming adversarial. 
Emotional adults respect others without having to change them. They give people room to make mistakes and not be perfect. They appreciate people for who they are, the good, the bad, and the ugly, not for what they give back. Emotionally adults, emotional, and emotional adults accurately express their own limits, strengths, and weaknesses and are able to freely discuss them with others. They're deeply in tune with their own emotional and world and are able to enter into the feelings, needs, and concerns of others without losing themselves. They have the capacity to resolve conflict maturely and negotiate solutions that consider the perspectives of others. Now that sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Each one of those descriptions describes characteristics that we see active in Jesus' life. And it probably describes some of your favorite people because they make you feel good to be around them. They're emotionally mature. They don't need from you. They're there to serve you, to love you, to lift you up. Now, it's interesting, as I'm thinking about this, there are emotional infants and children and adolescents and adults in every church that I've ever been a part of, including Linwood, and in every generation of every church, we see these present. We all find ourselves somewhere on that continuum, and to complicate matters, we all have good days and bad days, and on several good days in a row, we might be moving towards emotional adulthood. <laughs> and you give us a couple of bad days in a row, and it's bad enough, long enough, and we can define, find ourselves down the ladder a little bit further. But the goal is not a ranking of everybody in your life. Again, just self-assessment. Just get the mirror out and say, where am I? Do, are some of these characteristics that are lower on the level, are they present in my life? And if you're really bold, if you're really courageous, Take the magnifying glass and hand it to a trusted friend, somebody that you love, that you know loves you and has your best interest in mind, and say, do you see any of this in me? What do you see when you look at me? What's it like to be on the other side of me? Is it inspiring? Is it encouraging? Or is it infuriating and frustrating at times? Is it intimidating? Do you feel at ease? Do you feel comfortable around me? Or do you feel on edge? And then do something really, really important. Don't say a word in response. Just say thank you. Maybe take some notes. But don't try to defend. And don't try to turn the tables unless they've invited you to do the same. And just bring that to Jesus and say, Jesus, somebody I love and trust has pointed out some things in me that aren't where I want them to be. What can we do about that? Because this is how we grow. This is how we grow. This is how we mature. This is how we learn to love well, is by taking what isn't where we want it to be and bringing it to Jesus and saying, can we transform this? Can we work on this together? Can we, through your word, through prayer, through fellowship with other people, can we work on these things and become more emotionally mature? We follow the one who did it best. We learn from him. We really make it our life's goal, number one goal, to become like him to learn to live as he would if he were me. And that's because emotional maturity is a key component of discipleship. I think sometimes we wish we could reduce it down to just Bible knowledge and a few spiritual disciplines and serving some people, and all of those things are wonderful. But if we're not maturing emotionally, then our progress will stop at a certain point, and it won't get any farther. And one of the things that you'll see if you really do this, if you really decide to follow Jesus, and you decide to study his word, and you decide 
to emulate him in your life, you'll see that he treated everybody with, with dignity and with respect. Now, in the book, Scuzero references a theologian and psychologist named Martin Buber who talked about I-it relationships and I-thou relationships. So we're going to talk about that a little bit, but I want you to see that as sort of foundational to what we're really after, which is learning to see as God sees. Now, we've talked about that several times in this series because this is really, really important in our emotionally healthy discipleship, our emotionally healthy spirituality, is to learn to see everything as God sees, to learn to see God as he actually is, to learn to see myself as God sees me, and to learn to see everyone and everything, every situation in my life, to learn to see that through God's eyes. This is learning to love well. To realize that everyone is made in the image of God, including myself, and everyone is inherent of dignity and respect. And so the practical way that we do this is, should come as no surprise. We read Scripture, we read the Gospels, and we read the New Testament over and over and over, and we never tire of it because we know that each time through, we're going to see something new about God, about ourselves, about the people around us, about a situation. It's going to be informed by the gospel, and we're going to have an opportunity to change and to grow and become more like Jesus. And we want to be more like Jesus, and so we keep going through Scripture, through the gospels, through the New Testament. We read the Old Testament, and we see what we can learn about the character and the nature and the mind and the heart of God. We look at the pillars of the faith and their lives laid out for us in narrative form, and then we bring that into the New Testament narrative and the New Testament exhortations. We see how people grew and how people changed. And then we put it into practice. This is probably the most important step and the step that sometimes we just fill our minds with more knowledge and we don't fill our lives with more application. And if we're not applying what we're learning, then we're in kind of dicey territory again. James said in James chapter 2, today's reading in the Banding Together Journal, it cracked me up because I had it in my notes and I didn't know James was next when I wrote that. And then here we are in James chapter 2 where he says, do not just be hearers of the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. We have to do what it says. We have to, even when it's difficult, we have to do some of the hard teachings of Jesus, and we have to learn, and we have to build those spiritual muscles. So all that is in picture when we start talking about I-it relationships and I-thou relationships. Now, an I-it relationship treats the other person as an object, as a means to an end. We can do this intentionally, and we can do this unintentionally. And our culture is sort of geared to do this with a lot of people. We have service professionals, and they're there as a means to an end. And sometimes that causes us to treat other people very poorly, or we see people treating people very poorly. And sometimes we even do this with God. We treat God as a means to an end. We treat God as, I need this thing in my life, and you're probably the best way for me to get it. So I'll love you, I'll worship you, I'll sing songs, I'll praise your holy name, I'll put some money in the offering, as long as... You work on this. And Tim Keller, probably my favorite preacher, I probably listen to more Tim Keller messages than just about anybody else. Tim Keller says, whatever that thing is that you put in front of God and that you'll abandon God if it doesn't come through, that's your God. And we've made God a means to an end. And that's a challenging thing to hear. If we have a thing in our life that we say, God, if you don't fix this pretty soon, I'm done. I'm walking. That's your God, not God. We've treated God as an it. And it's interesting to me because we hate to be on the receiving end of this. We just hate when people treat us as a means to an end, when they're just there to get something from us. We don't like that. It doesn't feel good. 
And it strikes me, if you read your Gospels, you will never see Jesus do this once. Not to a single person. He never treated people as a means to an end. He never treated people as its. He always treated them as thou's, as a you, as someone who is a beloved child of God. That's what the I-thou relationship does. It treats everyone as a beloved child of God, somebody made in the image of God. As fertile soil for the gospel to take root in their lives and bring transformation to their lives. And we see every single person that way. And there are no hierarchies in regards to value or to dignity. We see that Jesus did this. He lived this out perfectly. And there's a number of ways that we do this. We do this with individuals in this it versus thou. We can do it with whole groups of people if we're not careful. And I was thinking through this and praying through this. And I know that this will be a sensitive illustration. But it's interesting to me that over the last couple of weeks... I've seen a lot of things on social media. I've even had personal requests of me as the pastor that we need to have a special prayer time for Israel. And I have prayed for Israel. And we as a church have prayed for Israel. But it occurs to me that I haven't seen a single social media post and I haven't had a single request that we pray for Hamas, for their salvation, realizing that that is a solution to the problem as well. That if Hamas was to be the place where revival broke out and people radically embraced the gospel, that there be no conflict with Israel right now. And the same thing occurred to me at a lower level with Russia and the Ukraine. Everybody was praying for Ukraine, and I'm thinking, gosh, if Putin could get saved, if he could embrace the gospel, if he could repent of his sins and turn radically towards Christ, what would that do for that conflict? And too often, we focus on the victims, and we should pray for them, and we should pray for peace. Don't misunderstand me. And this is one of the reasons that people don't say anything, because you get painted as an anti-Semite, or you get painted as a revisionist, or a replacement, and I'm none of those things. I'm just saying, like, there's a, Jesus said, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. And too often, we just pray for the persecuted. And Paul said, there's no Jew or Greek, there's no slave or free, there's no male or female. Now, clearly, there are men and women, there are slaves and free. When he's writing this, there are Jews and Greeks. So what does he mean? He's saying those things don't give you a one-up over anybody else. So the free Jewish man is no better off in the eyes of Christ than the slave Gentile woman. That's what Paul is saying, and that's what Jesus was saying. He died for both. He did away with the hierarchies. He taught us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us and not to pray for their destruction in case you're like, well, yeah, Pastor Mark, I'll pray for them. I'll pray. No. <laughs> pray for their salvation. Pray for radical change in their hearts. Pray that they'll be in heaven with us. And so as we kind of bring this to an end, one of the worst things that you can do <laughs> With a message like this, and I would add one of the most emotionally mature things you can do is just focus on somebody else's emotional maturity today and fix your eyes on that instead of fixing your eyes on Jesus and doing one of the most emotionally mature things we can do, which is to focus on our own emotional maturity, to focus on becoming more Christ-like ourselves and begging God to help us see everyone and everything as he sees, and then going to Scripture and finding out how did you see, how did you react, what did you do when you were persecuted, what did you do when false accusations were leveled against you, what did you do? 
How did you pray? And then we seek to emulate that in our own lives, to see everyone and everything as he does. So the bottom line today is actually a quote from the book. It says, one of the greatest gifts we can give our world is to be a community of emotionally healthy adults who love well. I really believe that. I really believe that that one of the greatest gifts Linwood can give to this neighborhood and this community of Sioux Falls is to collectively be a group of emotionally healthy adults who love well, who do it intentionally, who do it strategically, who do it sacrificially. And so I'm going to close with a lengthy quote that puts this into context, I think, for each of us. Scudero says, Remember Jesus formed a community with a small group from Galilee, a backward province in the ancient world. They were neither spiritually nor emotionally mature. Peter, the point leader, had a big problem with his mouth and was a bundle of contradictions. Andrew, his brother, was quiet and behind the scenes. James and John were given the name Sons of Thunder because they were aggressive, hot-headed, ambitious, and intolerant. Philip was skeptical and negative. He had limited vision. We can't do that, summed up his faith when confronted with the problem of feeding the 5,000. Nathaniel Bartholomew was prejudiced and opinionated. Matthew was the most hated person in Capernaum, working in a profession that abused innocent people. Thomas was melancholy, mildly depressive, and pessimistic. James, son of Alphaeus, and Judas, son of James, were nobodies. The Bible says nothing about them. Simon the Zealot was a freedom fighter and a terrorist in his day. Judas the treasurer was a thief and a loner. He pretended to be loyal to Jesus before finally betraying him. Most of them, however, had one great quality. They were willing. And that's all God asks of us. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your word and thank you for welcoming us into a relationship with you. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. That the family of God is open to us, that the kingdom of heaven is available in us and through us. And that this is true not just for us, Lord, but for every single person in this world. Every person will encounter and people will never meet. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be willing to learn to love well, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, now seated at the right hand of God. May we consider him who endured such sinful treatment from humans. Lest we grow weary and lose heart. Lord, you gave far more from us, for us, than you ask from us. Help us to learn to love well in your name. Amen.